In an age where rhetoric and emotions determine people's beliefs, one of the most countercultural things that you can do is to objectively look at the evidence regardless of how it makes you feel. It is also important to remember that things are not often what they seem, that history is not what you've been told, and that the truth will always be hated by the world. So today I invite you to abandon political correctness and oversensitivity so that you can learn the truth. Unfortunately, many will think that the things I'll share with you today are highly controversial or even hateful. Yet the good thing about the truth is that it remains true regardless of what we think about it. With that in mind, many believe that the Jews are God's chosen people, and that God intends to bless the Jews and the state of Israel at some point in the future because he obligated himself to do so with Abraham. One of the reasons why people think this makes sense is that they believe today's Jews are direct descendants of Abraham. Many Christians even believe that the Zionist state of Israel, and even anyone calling themselves a Jew today, have a special place in God's heart, and therefore, we as non-Jews need to bless and honor these people more than others. Otherwise, God will curse us or withhold his blessings. These and many similar attitudes must be tested thoroughly with scripture and with history. After all, when the devil tempted Christ in the desert, he did so by twisting God's word to suit his agenda. This is why we must exercise discernment and test all things. So, let's take a close look at these ideas and see what the Bible and history really have to say on these issues. We're going to skip past the rhetoric and look solely at what the evidence tells us. And those who have ears to hear and eyes to see will learn the truth. Strictly speaking, it is incorrect to call an ancient Israelite a Jew or to call a contemporary Jew an Israelite or a Hebrew. Jewish Almanac, 1980, page 3. The first most important thing to realize is that the word Jew is a loaded term. It originates from one of the tribes of Israel named Judah. Judah was one of Jacob's 12 sons and the term Jew refers to people who lived in or were from Judah the territory of land that the tribe of Judah received as their inheritance once they entered the Promised Land. Later this was called Judea, which is a Greco-Roman transliteration, and that means that the Jews were specifically from Judea. This may seem like no big deal, but it's actually very significant. Firstly, what it means is that those before the territory of Judah was created were not Jews. Moses wasn't a Jew, nor was he Jewish. Jacob was not a Jew or Jewish either. Isaac wasn't a Jew, nor was he Jewish. Abraham wasn't a Jew, because Abraham was a Hebrew, a descendant of Eber. Abraham was also promised to be the father of many nations, not just one nation or group of people, i.e. the Jews. In fact, up until and including Jacob, all of these patriarchs were referred to as Hebrews. God famously changed Jacob's name to Israel, and between the time of Jacob, through the time of Moses, and up until the territory of Judah was established, the people of the Bible were called Hebrews and Israelites, respectively. If the significance of these things isn't immediately obvious, don't worry. It will become very plain as we dive deeper into this. Moving on. What this means is that, 
Once the term Jew even began being used, it was really only used to refer to a minority of the people within Israel, that is, the Judeans or those from Judah. The Bible is therefore not about the Jews, nor are the Jews the founders of monotheism, nor even the majority of people highlighted in scripture. Samson was from the tribe of Dan, Deborah was from the tribe of Ephraim, Gideon was from Manasseh, Elijah came from Gad or Manasseh, and Elisha, his protege, came from Issachar. Joshua and Samuel were from the tribe of Ephraim, and Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi. All of these famous Bible heroes were Israelites, not Jews. They did not come from Judah, nor did they refer to themselves as Jews, because they had no reason to. The Bible also speaks of Egyptians, Phoenicians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Armenians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, and countless other pagan tribes and peoples. So, anyone telling you that the Jews are the center of scripture is just not telling you the truth. But now things start to get a little more complicated, and for that, you have to know a bit of history. When the Israelites took the Promised Land, they eventually formed two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, or the Northern and Southern Kingdom. Israel, which was the Northern Kingdom, was composed of the ten tribes of Israel, and Judah was composed of Benjamin and Judah in the south. It's important to remember now that the Israelites were surrounded by pagan tribes that they had failed to exterminate many times, often intermarrying with them and adopting their pagan practices instead. This disobedience angered God and he brought judgment on both Israel and Judah through the various empires that conquered them and took them away, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. After the Babylonians were themselves judged by God using the Persian Empire, a window opened up for some of the Israelites to move back to their territories. Of course, by this time, which was around the 5th century BC, that territory had been taken up by pagan tribes again, particularly the Edomites. This is a significant detail, so remember it for later. Now for a quick genealogy review. Isaac, Abraham's son, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the younger and received God's blessing. Jacob gave rise to the 12 tribes of Israel, or the Israelites. In Genesis 36 verses 2 through 3, the Bible tells us that Esau took three wives, two being Canaanites, which was a prohibited union by God, and an Ishmaelite. The various sons that Esau had with these women together created the Edomites. Edom means red, and Esau was described as being born red in Genesis 25, verse 25. Nevertheless, because Esau lost his inheritance to Jacob, this bitterness and hatred was passed down through the generations. The Edomites despised their Israelite cousins and often sought to destroy them, or at the very least hinder them in any way possible. Some examples of this are the Edomites blocking the Israelites from going through their land to the Promised Land, despite the Israelites' assurance of a peaceful pass-through. This is found in Numbers 20, verse 21. David and Saul conquered the Edomites many times, and an instance during the reign of Jehoshaphat, where the Edomites tried and failed to take over Israel, is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the Edomites allied themselves with Nebuchadnezzar during the Babylonian invasion and destroyed the first temple. This is documented in Psalm 137, verse 7. 
All of this history is important to understand for what comes next. Edom and Israel were mortal enemies, and Edomites had nothing to do with God, God's promises, or God's people. Remember that Esau married two Canaanite women, a union that God prohibited because the Canaanites had abominable practices, like sacrificing and eating their children, orgies, sorcery, ruthlessness, and basically everything that God hates, just as he says through the prophet Micah in Micah 1 verses 2 through 3. So now we have some context to understand a few very important developments in the history of the Israelites, as well as the history of the term Jew. Throughout the Israelites' tenure of the Promised Land, they frequently rebelled by intermarrying and abandoning God's laws. This brought swift judgment on both Israel and Judah, but it also diluted their blood and what it meant to be a Jew in antiquity. When the Persians allowed the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and their respective kingdoms, these places were already inhabited by Edomites and other tribes. The Israelites again intermarried and disobeyed God, and this forced the prophets and leaders of the time to make the Israelites abandon their wives and separate themselves. This is documented in both Nehemiah 9 verse 2 and Ezra 9 verse 2. After the Persians came the Greeks with Alexander the Great, but Alexander quickly passed away and his kingdom split into four major territories. One of these territories, called the Seleucid Empire, ruled over the areas formerly held by Judah and Israel. In the second century, a group of revolutionaries called the Maccabees, descendants of the tribe of Levi, successfully revolted against the Greeks and reintegrated the land and people back into the laws of Moses. These reforms were a step forward, yet consistent with the countless compromises of their forefathers, the Maccabees, or Hasmonean dynasty, forced the surrounding Edomites to get circumcised and declare themselves Jews, rather than expelling them for having destroyed the temple and having aided the Babylonians in the past. All of this was done around the 2nd century BC, and what that means is that by the time of Christ, those who lived in Judea and called themselves Jews were not necessarily true Israelites, like Jesus, but rather any possibility of the following. Descendants of prohibited unions, converted Edomites that were basically Jews in name only, or genuine descendants of the tribe of Judah. In fact, it is documented that the Sadducees, one of the political powers of Jesus' time who often sought to accuse him, were composed of at least partly Edomite Jews. King Herod Antipas, who killed John the Baptist because John condemned Herod's marriage to his brother's divorced wife, and also betrayed his kinsmen and murdered his next of kin in order to earn the throne from the Romans and become king of Judea, was also an Edomite. King Herod I, his predecessor and also an Edomite Jew, murdered many of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and rulers in order to solidify his political position, bringing in his Edomite kinsmen and appointing them to positions of power. These social realities are probably why the Apostle Paul identifies himself as a Hebrew and as an Israelite in Philippians 3 verse 5 and Romans 11 verse 1, rather than just as a generic Jew. It is also why the Gospel of John often directly mentions the Jews by name in the treachery they were seeking to do against Christ. Whether this treachery is grounded in the Edomite hatred for their brother Jacob, 
or the hatred of Judah toward his brother Joseph. Remember that Judah sold his brother Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Sound familiar? Being a Jew by Jesus' time was a loaded term to say the least, and it by no means meant that you were among God's chosen people. Nevertheless, the conversion of the Edomites is confirmed by the famous historian Flavius Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews, Book 13, and also the Greek historian Strabo in his work Geographies. Fast forward now to after the destruction of the Second Temple, when the Jews led a major revolt against the Romans and lost, resulting in them being scattered and all records of genealogies being destroyed. Today the Jews want to rebuild the Third Temple and are gathering together a supposed Levitical priesthood, yet it is impossible to trace genealogies to the original Levites because all records were destroyed long ago. In fact, despite the judgments the Jews received for killing Christ, they attempted two more revolts in 115 AD and 132 AD, called the Quitos War and the Bar Kokhba Revolt, respectively. These revolts also failed, leading the Jews to be completely banished from Judea and Judea to be renamed to Syria-Palestina. Further complicating this already ridiculously complicated issue is the Khazarian conversion of Judaism around the 8th century. The Khazars were a pagan Turkic tribe of peoples that had settled in the area of modern-day Ukraine, Crimea, and Kazakhstan. Like all empires, they eventually were dispersed, and these people migrated into other areas like Russia and Europe. This is why anyone who claims to be a Jew today cannot reliably trace their ancestorship to the biblical Israelites, or even the tribe of Judah. It is impossible because no records exist. And it is also impossible because there have been so many infiltrations of pagan tribes into what it means to be a Jew. An important point to now make is that this is also why the term anti-Semitic is abused by today's Jews to manipulate social perceptions. It is an abuse because first and foremost the term doesn't apply in the way they make it apply to themselves. Anti-Semitic means against Shem. But who is Shem? The answer is that Shem was one of Noah's sons and the father of many peoples, such as the Babylonians, Persians, Arabs, and several others. To be anti-Semitic is to be against any of these peoples, yet today's Jews appropriate this term only to themselves while creating new terms like Islamophobia for other Semitic peoples. This is wrong for at least two reasons. The first being that the Jews of today cannot reliably call themselves Semites or direct descendants of the tribe of Judah due to all of the historical context we just covered. The second reason is that even if they could, anti-Semitism doesn't apply just to people from the tribe of Judah. But even more interesting than all of this is the origin of the term anti-Semitism and its roots in Jewish Bolshevism. It is a fact that Karl Marx, one of the originators of communism, was born a Jew and grandson to two rabbis. Nevertheless, Marx was in practice an atheist. 
Leon Trotsky, a major figure of the Bolshevik Revolution, was also an atheist Jew. Stalin, who everybody knows, was also part Jewish and entrenched in the Jewish community. Stalin's official ethnicity was Georgian, but there is evidence he was part Ossetian, which was a group of people around Georgia and Russia. Why this is important is because Stalin's surname, Zhugashvili, was a Georgianized Ossetian version of Zhugashvili. In Ossetian, the word Zug means herd, while Zuga means Jew. Shvili in Georgian means son of, so Zhuga Zhvili means either son of a herd or son of a Jew. Most of Stalin's relatives were also married or related to Jews. Catherine Svanditze, his first wife, had a brother named Alexander Svanditze, who was married to a Jewess, Maria Kogan, from a rich Jewish family. Stalin's sister-in-law, Anna Halaluyeva, married Stanislav Redens, who was Jewish. Stalin's eldest son, Jacob, married Judith Meltzer, who was also Jewish. Stalin's daughter, Svetlana, married a Jew named Grigory Morozov. More facts about the Jews and communism are as follows. Lazar Kaganovich, another top Bolshevik leader, was a Jew. Lenin, who is also well-known like Stalin and Trotsky, likely had Jewish descent from his grandparents. In fact, most of the heads of the secret police, gulag administrators, and famous Bolshevik terrorists were all Jews. When communism spread to China and the surrounding areas, about 80 to 90% of those coordinating the efforts were Jews. Why all of this matters is that the term anti-Semite or anti-Semitic did not exist up until the 20th century. For the countless times that the Jews were overthrown and destroyed by pagan empires, or later when they were expelled from European countries and banned, not a single time was the word anti-Semitic ever used by anyone, Jew or Gentile. So what changed? The answer is Bolshevism. Just like the CIA would later do with the assassination of Kennedy by creating the term conspiracy theorist to discourage criticism or analysis of the government's role in subterfuge, so too did the Bolsheviks do several decades earlier with their communist revolutions. People knew that most of the Bolsheviks were Jews or married into the Jewish elite and saw what was happening. And as a result, any criticism of the Jews was sharply outlawed and punished with torture or death. This is where the term anti-Semitism comes from. It doesn't come from the Bible, it doesn't come from God, and it doesn't even relate to actual Jews from Judea. It is a term originally created to shelter a renegade group of Edomite Jews, along with false Jewish converts and their sympathizers who could care less about God or the Bible. Today it is used as a thought-stopping device when any form of criticism is directed at Zionism, the Zionist state of Israel, the mainstream World War II narrative, or the Jewish power structure that exists across the world and is obvious for anyone with a few minutes on their hands to Google the early life of politicians, CEOs, pharmaceutical industry leaders, banking leaders, and people in Hollywood or the media. Also, let's not forget all of the fake anti-Semitic crimes exposed as hoaxes perpetrated by Jews themselves, which really begs the question as to why these people would perpetuate their own victimhood to the masses. Perhaps it has to do with maintaining the political, social, and financial benefits of that victimhood, but I'll let you decide. Either way, don't be fooled by it.
Um, often when there is dissent expressed in the United States against policies of the Israeli government, um, uh, people here are called anti-Semitic. Uh, what is your response to that as an Israeli Jew? Well, it's a trick. We always use it. When from Europe somebody is criticizing Israel, then we bring up the Holocaust. When in this country people are criticizing Israel, then they are anti-Semitic. And the organization is strong and has a lot of money. And the, the ties between uh, Israel and the American Jewish establishment are very strong. And they are strong in this country. As you know, uh, they have power, which it's okay they are talented people and they have power money and uh, media and other things and their attitude is Israel my country right or wrong the identification and they are not ready to hear criticism and it's very easy to blame people who criticize certain acts of the Israeli government as anti-Semitics and to bring up the Holocaust and the suffering of the Jewish people and that's, that justify everything we do to the Palestinians. We now move further through history and closer to the modern day, where the things you have learned about the term Jew reach a maximum through Zionism and the Zionist state of Israel. A bit of history here is important as well. Zionism is a political movement that was created in the 19th century and spearheaded by a man named Theodore Herzl, an atheist or agnostic Jew. Zionism's ideal is not only a Jewish state, but really a Jewish empire. Zionism is nationalism in its most extreme sense. There are many reasons for this, not the least of which is the generational hatred of Edomites for Israelites and the hatred of Judah against Joseph that we touched on earlier. Yet one thing we haven't talked about is the Talmud, which we will address a little later, but nevertheless if you understand what this book teaches and what Zionist Jews think of non-Jews, their extremist political attitudes make quite a bit of sense. What is now a crucial detail is how this nobody of a man, Theodor Herzl, was able to propagate his ideas within such a short period of time and create such a significant political outcome. Today you even have Christian Zionists, which, if you know your history, is a total oxymoron. Nonetheless, history reveals to us the answer as to why Zionism took off. It had a purpose for the beast. At the turn of the 20th century, Theodor Herzl met with the Pope, and within 50 years of that meeting, the world saw two major world wars, the reorganization of Europe, and the creation of a state of Israel in the Middle East. This state was funded by the Rothschilds, the Jewish banking name that many have undoubtedly heard by now, and it's interesting to note that Jacob Rothschild has a famous picture with the satanic witch Marina Abramovich next to a painting called Satan Summoning His Legions. You really can't make this stuff up. Another important detail that most people don't know is that Hitler played a major role in creating the modern state of Israel through something called the Transfer Agreement. Despite what the narrative tells you, the reality is that Hitler wanted to get rid of the Jews by deporting them as soon as possible. Because of his efforts, along with the Rothschilds' funding, many thousands of Jews were sent to Palestine to begin colonization. 
Hitler was propped up by the Vatican and was very much in love with the Jesuit model. It is also known that the Nazis dabbled in the occult, and many of their finest minds were imported to the United States after the war, which led to the creation of NASA and other sinister programs that today have created countless lying signs and wonders. Isn't history interesting? Why it's important to understand the truth about World War II and the origins of the State of Israel, as well as their key connections to the papacy, is as follows. During the Reformation, every single reformer identified the Pope and the papacy as the Antichrist power that both Daniel and John warned about. This is important because it means that none of the founders of Protestantism ever held a Jewish-focused belief of the end times or a Jewish-focused view of the plan of redemption. Most, if not all, of the reformers rightly saw the Israel of God as God's chosen elective faithful throughout time, and that physical Israel was a type and shadow for the fulfilled reality of Christ's church of believers. But I digress, more on this later. In order to combat the reformers, the papacy created the Jesuits as their propaganda and special ops unit, and the Jesuits created counter-narratives as a response, promoting them throughout Europe with their vast resources. It was, and still is, the ultimate disinformation campaign, and the Jews have played an integral part in this charade for the Pope for at least the last 120 years. Nevertheless, a Jesuit named Luis del Alcazar created preterism, where everything is pushed to the past, and end times Bible prophecy deals with just the Jews of the ancient times, while Manuel Lacunza, Francisco Ribera, and Cardinal Robert Bellarmine popularized futurism, the narrative that end times Bible prophecy deals with just the future, and yet again, the Jews as the center of prophecy with a rebuilt Jewish temple. In this way, the Catholic Church successfully diverted attention off of itself as the counterfeit who invaded the body of Christ, inverting end times events from centering around the Church, which is the true Israel of God, the Bride of Christ, or the body of faithful believers, to instead centering around the Jews. Yet this big lie had a major problem. The false prophecy they committed to had to one day be fulfilled. This is where Theodor Herzl and Zionism come into play and why the modern state of Israel, the notion that Israel is the center of Bible prophecy, Christian Zionism, and dispensationalism are all Jesuit inventions designed to deceive the world into the final trick, a false golden age, and possibly even a false Christ. How all of this works is the subject of my in-depth and time series, but the main point is that it has to do with the misunderstanding of something called the Millennial Kingdom. This is taken from Revelation 20, where John sees the saints coming alive and ruling with Christ for a thousand years. But the meaning of this verse is describing a spiritual reign that is currently unfolding while Christ's enemies are being put under his feet, not a physical, literal reign in Jerusalem for a thousand literal years where there is still sin and death during some kind of quasi-golden age. But because most of the Christian world subscribes to futurism and dispensationalism, all of these events are being engineered to fulfill the fleshly inversion that the beast created 500 years ago. Even Jews and Muslims expect some type of future golden age, and this is why you have to know where your beliefs come from. The Bible says that through false signs and wonders, people will be fooled into worshiping the beast at the end of time. And it's clear from these events that the beast is creating the stage for a false world peace and possibly even a false return of Jesus with Satan putting on the greatest deception in history by masquerading as the Son of God. 
True to her moniker, Mystery Babylon is the mother of abominations of the earth. Who is Mystery Babylon? She's the one who created Islam, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the French Revolution and Communism, Hollywood, the Charismatic Movement, and, you guessed it, the Zionist State of Israel. Can you guess the identity of the woman who wears red and purple and sits on seven hills, laughing as she is drunk with the blood of the saints? We still have some important things to discuss, but let's do a quick review of the terms we've learned. Number one, Jew, a term describing people from the tribe of Judah in the Bible, or those who lived in Judah or later Judea, not necessarily from the tribe of Judah. Today the term Jew can mean a whole host of things compared to what it meant 2,500 years ago. Number two, Israelite, anyone from the 12 tribes of Israel living in the biblical northern kingdom. An Israelite might be a Jew because of Judah, or a non-Jew because of the 11 other tribes. Number three, Jewish, a word more often used today to usually describe anyone that practices Judaism or something to do with Judaism. A very small percentage of those who practice Judaism are actually Jews descending from the tribe of Judah, because anyone can convert to Judaism and become Jewish, just like the Edomites did in the second century BC, and just like the Khazars did in the 8th century AD. Number four, Zionism, a political movement that sees anyone who isn't a Jew as animals that need to be destroyed or enslaved, with major ambitions to create a Jewish empire in the Middle East and advocate Jewish supremacy throughout the world. Number five, State of Israel, a Rothschild and papal-created illegal occupation of Palestine that serves political and spiritual roles for the beast by creating dialectics, justifying wars, and fulfilling the false Jesuit futurist prophecy of the end times. Number six, Israeli. Anyone who currently lives in the state of Israel and has citizenship there could be a Jew or a non-Jew. Number seven, nation of Israel. The nation of people born from Jacob or the 12 tribes of Israel applies to biblical times prior to the destruction of the first temple, which was in 586 BC, since Israel ceased to be a nation politically at that point. Now that we have some proper distinctions, the rest of our journey will be focused on answering one simple question. Are the modern Jews God's chosen people according to the Bible and according to history? And if not, why not? To find our answers, we will start back with Abraham, the father of monotheism. Many today argue that the Jews are still God's chosen people because God owes them the land he promised thousands of years ago to Abraham. But careful study reveals two significant problems with this argument. The first is that Abraham was not a Jew, nor was his son Isaac or his grandson Jacob. God made the promise to the Hebrews, who eventually became the Israelites. God did not make his covenant with the Jews, as you have hopefully learned by now. But the second problem is that these land promises were fulfilled a long time ago through the empire of Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7 through 8, the Israelites are too numerous to count, which fulfills the promise of them becoming a great nation, numerous in number. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21, the Bible describes the boundaries of Solomon's empire, which fulfill the area of land described by God to Abraham in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21. In Acts chapter 7, verse 17, 
Stephen recounts that the, quote, time of the promise was drawing near when the Hebrews were ready to begin the Exodus, which was around 1400 BC. And in Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45, the Bible says that not one word of all that God had promised Abraham had failed, but rather that all had come to pass. But then why did the Jews lose their land if God had promised it to them? The answer is simple. The covenant of land was conditional, meaning it was dependent upon something they had to do, namely obedience. Because the Israelites whored after other gods, intermarried and rebelled countless times, they did not uphold their end of the bargain, and as a result, lost their land because God is just. Yet remember that the greatest blessing God promised Abraham, that he would bless all nations, was fulfilled in Christ through the gospel, and this is why the church, not the Jews, is the true body of chosen people. We'll talk more about this later, but important to understand here is that the church is not a denomination, a physical building, or any institution. It is simply the group of people God has chosen to save and give to Christ, the fellowship of true believers, which is the body of Christ. This is the true universal church, of which the Catholic church is a counterfeit of. So we must be wise not to confuse the bride of Christ with the harlot of Babylon. Moving on. Another important piece of evidence that the Jews are not God's chosen people is Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. This prophecy was given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 to predict the arrival of Jesus' ministry to the exact year. The context of this prophecy is that Daniel receives a greater prophecy of 2300 days in Daniel 8, but he's very troubled by it. In fact, he's so troubled by it that he falls sick and needs to rest. A good amount of time passes, and then Daniel 9 opens with Daniel crying out for help, with the Archangel Gabriel coming to give him clarity. It is how Gabriel begins this discussion and frames this prophecy that is very important. Gabriel says in Daniel 9 verse 24 that, quote, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. This means that out of the previous 2300 days that Daniel received from Gabriel in Daniel 8, a total of 70 weeks worth, or 490 days, are reserved for a special purpose, particularly the fulfillment of Israel's role in bringing about the promised Messiah. Notice again that this prophecy is dealing with Israel, not the Jews, which many people miss. But moving on. The important thing to understand about Daniel's 70 weeks is that they are not literal weeks, but prophetic weeks, or weeks of prophetic days. In other words, the days represent actual years, so 490 years total. This brings up another important and related point. If Daniel's 70 weeks is historically fulfilled, then so are all of the time prophecies given in Daniel, including the 1260-day period, which is echoed multiple times in the book of Revelation, and which the reformers recognized was fulfilled historically, leading them to see the Catholic beast system and its antichrist god-king, which is the Pope, as the fulfillment of these ancient warnings. Nevertheless, contrary to what most people believe about this prophecy, the 70th week of Daniel has already been fulfilled by Jesus. It is not about some future antichrist that will walk into a physical, rebuilt Jewish temple, with one simple reason being that no prophecy in the Bible has a gap in between two periods, let alone a gap that is longer than the prophecy itself. God's prophecies are always continuous, and what this means is that if we plot it out historically, 
we see with clear archaeological evidence this prophecy rightly predicts Christ's advent in 27 AD, his crucifixion in 31 AD, and the end of the Israelites' special status as God's chosen people happening in 34 AD. So, what happened in 34 AD that was so significant? Stephen was stoned and the apostles were dispersed from Jerusalem to the nations to spread the gospel. Shortly after, Paul was converted and Peter received his dream about the Gentiles. The time of the Old Testament was done, and with it, the time for the Israelites as the physical chosen people was officially over. Next, we have the imagery of Revelation 12, written down by the Apostle John sometime in the first century on the island of Patmos. This is a colorful vision of a woman who gives birth to the Messiah and then runs away from the dragon. A woman always represented the body of believers, and often Israel was called a virgin and described as God's bride, Ezekiel 16. Yet after the birth of the Messiah, the church is the bride of Christ. This is in Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. What is crucial to understand from this vision is that the woman, which represents the body of believers, is the same before and after the Messiah. She is God's bride, God's elect through faith, or the body of genuine believers. In the Old Testament, that body of elect believers was largely limited to the nation of Israel because God's plan of salvation had not yet been fully revealed. Yet even within the nation of Israel, recall that there was a remnant that God had always reserved for himself through election. See 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, while leaving the others to rebellion and not saving them. With Christ, this sovereign electing purpose expanded to include all nations, and this new group of believers is the church or the body of Christ. This is proven by the fact that the woman in Revelation 12 remains the same before and after the Messiah, and her running away from the dragon for 1260 days is a picture of the true church being persecuted by the papal power from 538 AD to 1798 AD. Ironically, one of the main books of Rabbinic Judaism, the Babylonian Talmud, testifies against the Jews as being God's chosen people because of an interesting phenomenon that took place for exactly 40 years before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Basically, the Jews had always relied on signs during the Day of Atonement to confirm whether God had forgiven their sins. These were things like ribbons being tied around the goats' necks, turning different colors, or signs by lot. This is all documented in Yoma 39a. But now here's the interesting part. In Yoma 39b, the Talmud records that for exactly 40 years before the destruction of the temple, none of these signs for the Day of Atonement came to pass. In other words, God was giving the Jews a very clear message that they were not forgiven. If we count inclusively, as people did back then, what year do we arrive at by counting 40 years prior to 70 AD? The answer is 31 AD, the exact year that Jesus was crucified and rejected by the Jews. That means for 40 years God gave the Jews signs to repent because sacrifices were no longer accepted in light of Christ's death on the cross. But in the spirit of their fathers, most of the Jews remained stiff-necked and were judged in 70 AD for their rebellion. The temple was destroyed because there was no more need for it, 
and the time for biblical Israel as an outward show of God's electing purpose had come to an end in light of spiritual Israel, which is the church. This now brings me to some very important points. The reason the Israelites were chosen as a nation apart from other nations was so that the Messiah could be born. This alone is enough of a reason to know that the Jews are not God's chosen people because this purpose has long been fulfilled. God's promise of a savior was first given to Eve in Genesis 3 verse 15. Then it was repeated to Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 18, where God promised Abraham that his offspring would one day bless all the nations of the earth. This promise was fulfilled in Christ through the gospel and it was foreshadowed by countless types and prefigurements in the Old Testament that God created through the Israelites to reveal his plan of salvation. The tabernacle in the wilderness, the high priesthood, the sacrifices, the kings, the judges, the prophets, and all the other important figures like Isaac, Joseph, Moses, and many others that all played their part in portraying some aspect of the coming Messiah and his ministry. So biblical Israel had two main purposes to typify the Messiah through these various physical elements and to create a holy or set apart people from the nations that God could demonstrate his plan of salvation through by bringing about the incarnation and life of Jesus. As of the resurrection, both of these purposes have been fulfilled and we are now in the new reality with a new way of relating to God through Jesus Christ. This was the mystery hidden through the ages that was revealed in Jesus which the Apostle Paul discusses in Colossians 1, verse 26 to 27. It was the mystery that God himself would take on human form, become the propitiation for our sins by obeying the law perfectly, and yet be put to death unjustly, only to resurrect and conquer death for all those who believe in him. Through the perfect and infinitely valuable sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, God's name as a righteous judge was vindicated because he had passed over countless sins in history. That's Romans 3, verse 25. Through this once-for-all priceless gift, God also set the legal precedent to forgive sinners and give them new life through his Holy Spirit. This is a profoundly unique and different reality than the Old Testament or any other spiritual teaching or religion in history, for that matter. In this new reality of fellowship with God and one another, there is neither Jew nor Greek. That's Galatians 3, verse 28. And the meaning of a Jew is one who is inwardly circumcised through a new heart, not outwardly circumcised based on the flesh. That's Romans 2 verse 29. Because Christ's sacrifice was perfect, there is no more need for regular sacrifices to approach God. On the contrary, we are encouraged to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, that's Romans 12 verse 1, to be part of God's unfolding will in the world. Instead of a physical temple that limits worshiping God to a singular place, we are now living stones in a spiritual house that can worship God anywhere. See 1 Peter 2.5, Matthew 18 verse 20, and Revelation 3 verse 12. Those who believe in Jesus are also a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation to God. That's 1 Peter 2 verse 9, proclaiming the riches of his mercy through the gospel to the world. This is the true chosen people of God, the Israel of faith those whom God has chosen to save and give to Christ. John 6 verse 44 says that no man can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. And earlier in John 6 verse 39, Christ says that it is the will of the Father that Jesus lose nobody that the Father gives to him. This is the sovereign predestining purpose of election 
that God has revealed through the gospel. See Romans 8, verse 28 through 30. And it's why Paul said that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. See Romans 9, verse 6. He also said that we as believers in Christ are the circumcision, that's in Philippians 3, verse 3, that we are called the Israel of God, Galatians 6, verse 16, and why before Jacob and Esau were even born, God had predetermined who would be blessed through his sovereign joys. That's Romans 9, verse 11. It is also why when the Pharisees bragged of their physical lineage back to Abraham, Jesus rebuked them and told them the truth, that their father was the devil and that they lusted to do his works. John 8, 44. One thing today's zealous dispensationalists or Christian Zionists fail to realize is that the New Testament doesn't play identity politics. In the Old Testament, identity politics were necessary. But in the New Testament, these divisions have been done away with because of the arrival of Christ. Trying to cling to divisions of the flesh is not in alignment with the gospel, and just like Jesus said in Luke 5, verse 37 to 39, it's like trying to put new wine in old wineskins. Instead of interpreting the Old Testament realities through the New Testament, those who have bought into the narrative that the Jews are God's chosen people do it the other way around. They use the Old Testament to interpret the New. Today, Christians falsely believe that Judaism is not only the faith of Abraham and the Israelites, but also the root of Christianity. The term Judeo-Christian is often peddled by ignorant people or Zionist puppets to camouflage what is inherently an antichrist counterfeit with the truth of God that is revealed in the gospel. Again, a bit of history here is important. When the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century BC, and both Israel and Judah were exiled for 70 years, many things changed. Without a temple to offer sacrifices, the Israelites could not practice the laws given to them through Moses. As a result, this led to the rise of synagogues, houses of worship and study, yeshivot, schools for training rabbis, and of course, the office of rabbi. Instead of being guided by the Levitical priests, the prophets, and the kings as God had intended, because all of these people were pictures of Christ, the rabbis now became the authorities who established various laws and practices for Israel. It is important to note that Babylon's pagan and mystical practices also influenced these religious developments. Unlike biblical Israelites, who saw only the scriptures as authoritative, today's Jews consider a variety of texts as authoritative, such as the Mishnah, which is a rabbinic commentary on the scriptures, Targums, which are old Aramaic interpretations of the scriptures, Midrash, which are old rabbinic commentaries, the Talmud, the Zohar, and also Kabbalah. Out of these, the Talmud, the Zohar, and Kabbalah are completely contradictory to the Old Testament. The Zohar and Kabbalah deal in the occult and teach mysticism, and the Talmud contradicts the Hebrew scriptures in many ways. Rabbis today also use gematria, which is practically divination, and for anyone who has looked into the practice and beliefs of Kabbalah with discernment, it is nothing more than the lie from the Garden of Eden. Today, countless celebrities are in the Kabbalah club, and people don't realize that it is part of the secret religion that all of the elites partake of, which is really the worship of Lucifer. Makes you wonder why Trump, who is supposedly so against the establishment, had a Jewish Kabbalah teacher, doesn't it? That's on page 188 of Trump, The Way to the Top, 
but I digress. The Jews today also consider the beginning of the day at sundown and practice the Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Yet this too is a Babylonian inversion and tradition of man. Sadly, even Sabbath-keeping Christians have been duped by this, aligning with rabbinical Judaism instead of what the Bible clearly teaches, that the day begins with the greater light, which is the sun, not the lesser light, which is the moon. After all, why would God start the day with darkness? These are inversions, and they are easy to spot because all the devil does is take what God has created and flip it upside down. Now let's get back to the rabbis. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the rabbis who had rejected Christ had to come up with a solution for atonement, especially with the rise of the gospel which promised forgiveness of sins. They reasoned amongst themselves that God would not demand something that was impossible to fulfill, like temple sacrifices, so they created their own substitution for atonement, called the Great Three Concepts, Teshuvah, Repentance, Tzedekah, Righteous Deeds, and Tefillah, Prayer. This is really when Judaism completely split from the Hebrew scriptures and became the works righteousness religion it is today. But now, do you remember how for exactly 40 years after Christ's death, God rejected their signs for the Day of Atonement? Despite this obvious sign, the countless signs of scripture through prophecy and typology, and the sign of judgment that fulfilled Christ's prophetic words in 70 AD, the stubborn Jews still decided that they could approach God with their own substitutionary atonement. Does this remind you of anyone in the Bible? If you said Cain, then you'd be right. Cain was rejected by God because he wanted to approach God on his own terms, not on the terms that God had provided. And today's Judaism is no different. This is why it has nothing to do with Hebrewism or the Levitical religion of the Israelites, and why it cannot claim any connection thereof. Other developments in Rabbinic Judaism are as follows. From 400 BC to about 200 AD, we see the rise of the Mishnah, or Oral Law, which is a commentary on the Old Testament. In other words, it is a rabbinic interpretation of the Old Testament that is counted equally as authoritative as the Word of God. By Jesus' day, the Pharisees, who were part of this rabbinic system, were sharply criticized for twisting the scriptures for their own gain and nullifying God's laws through their traditions. Several centuries after Christ, we see the development of the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Mishnah, so basically a commentary on another commentary that is also authoritative. What all these developments add up to is that today's Judaism is its own religion that has no connection to the Hebrew scriptures. At best, it is an in-name-only connection, and at worst, it is a satanic counterfeit, just like Catholicism is with Christianity. The reality is that Judaism did not begin with Abraham as the Jews claim. Rather, Judaism began as a counterfeit of Hebrewism during the Babylonian captivity, continuing to splinter off by Jesus' time and, after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, solidifying itself as, quote, the religion of the Jews. But Judaism is in complete contradiction to the Hebrew Scriptures for several reasons, so let's go over those reasons. Number one, the authority of Scripture. Hebrews like Moses and Israelites like Paul held the Scriptures as God-breathed and completely authoritative. In contrast, Jews today hold many texts and traditions as equally authoritative, even though these other sources contradict scripture. Orthodox Jews believe that the Torah, which is the first five books, is more authoritative than the rest of the scriptures, while Reformed Jews hold that the Hebrew Bible as a whole is a human document outlining history, culture, legends, and attitudes of the Jews. 
Revelation to Reformed Jews is an ongoing process, meaning that new revelations from authoritative leaders are equally valid to Scripture. Lastly, conservative Jews believe that the Hebrew Bible is the word of both God and man. To them, Scripture is not inspired in the traditional sense, but rather, it's some kind of cooperation between man and God. Revelation for them is also an ongoing process. So, what's the conclusion? In no form of today's Judaism does the Old Testament stand alone as the sufficient and completely authoritative word of God, like it did for Moses, and like it did for Paul, and like it does for true biblical Christians. Number two, the nature of atonement. From Adam to Noah to Job to Abraham to Moses to the time of Jesus, atonement with God has always been by grace, through faith, via a propitiatory sacrifice. In other words, a sacrifice that paid for your sins was the only way to approach God, and God allowed these sacrifices to be done in place of killing people for their sins because of His grace. This was expressly communicated in Leviticus 17.11, and the New Testament echoes this in Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Atonement cannot be achieved by good deeds or prayers or effort of any kind, because God is a just judge and a just judge cannot let you pay for past crimes with future good works. That's not how our judicial system works, and it certainly is not how God works. This is the fundamental issue not just with Judaism, but every religion, and why Christianity alone has the solution through a once-for-all perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. But the Jews today do not have a temple nor legitimate sacrifices to approach God with. In order for the Jews to claim that Judaism is 4,000 years old, they have to show a consistent adherence to the Hebrew Scriptures, which they can't show, and this is why Judaism is its own religion. Another issue is that if they do build the temple and reinstate animal sacrifices, God will see this as an abomination according to Proverbs 15 verse 8 and other places. To reject the sacrifice of the perfect Son of God, which was testified to for thousands of years, and to try to approach God with a dead animal as a substitution is not only laughable, but truly an abomination. Number three, the nature of God. Rabbinical scholar Alan Segal's landmark book on the two powers in heaven theology the Jews had for several centuries, as well as close study of the Old Testament, reveal a striking truth. The Israelites acknowledged that Yahweh was one God existing in plurality. There are many things to discuss on why this is the case, but one easy example is the angel of Yahweh, which is a mysterious figure that shows up many times in the Old Testament that claims to be God, takes credit for God's actions, and receives worship. Yet also, he speaks about Yahweh in the third person often. These confusing situations led the Jews to adopt the belief that there were two powers in heaven without compromising their monotheism. In fact, the Jewish sages of antiquity struggled to understand how the immaterial, omnipresent God could interact in the world and do all these things. So they came up with the concept of the Memra, or the Word. This Memra was God, but also distinct from God. And many of the ancient Targums, like the Targum Neophyti, or Targum Onkelos, translated the Hebrew scriptures with this theology in mind. An example would be Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, translated in Targum Neophyti, which reads as follows. From the beginning with wisdom, the Memra, which is the word, of the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. And the Memra of the Lord said, Let there be light, and there was light by his Memra. Does this remind you of something? 
If you said John 1 verses 1 through 3, then you would be right. John was playing off of these cultural attitudes and specifically identified Jesus as the Word so that the Jews would know he was the prophesied Messiah and Savior, who is also God incarnate. Yet in sharp contrast to these beliefs, today's Jews do not believe in a multi-personal God. In fact, most Jews have a limited view of God and his sovereignty. Unlike the Israelites of the Old Testament, they do not believe God is sovereign over salvation, because Judaism is works-based, and they do not believe in a multi-personal God either, like biblical Israelites did for several centuries. An interesting fact is that the two powers in heaven theology was declared a heresy by the rabbis shortly after Jesus' resurrection and the rise of Christianity. Coincidence? I think not. Number four, the nature of the Messiah. The last point to mention is that the Jews of today hold a vastly different view of the Messiah than the Israelites did in the Old Testament and even during Jesus' time. It is beyond clear from several texts that the Jews expected a supernatural Messiah, a God-King of sorts, to come and rescue them. The vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, who receives dominion and worship, is a deity figure, and when Jesus applies this to himself when he was put on trial by the Pharisees, they tore their robes and accused him of blasphemy. Like with all the previous points, today's Jews live in sharp contrast to the Old Testament with their view on the Messiah. Instead of one Messiah, they believe in two, the Ben Joseph and the Ben David Messiah. And instead of a divine God-King that is worshipped as God, they believe anyone can be the Messiah if the political circumstances are right. They also believe that it's up to them to do certain things to bring about the return of the Messiah, whereas the Old Testament testifies of God's sovereignty over the revealing of the Messiah through countless prophecies. In other words, nothing man could do would affect when Jesus was going to be born and when he would die. And that is why today's Jews yet again have nothing to do with the Hebrew Scriptures. A quick, fun fact about the book of Daniel is the following. It is recorded that the rabbis placed a curse on anyone trying to calculate the arrival of the Messiah according to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, found in Daniel 9. This curse is found in the Talmud, Sanhedrin 97b. The surface reasoning is that if you get the calculation wrong, the Messiah might not show up. But by now I'm sure you know the real reason those rabbis didn't want anyone snooping around in Daniel 9. So you see my friend, when it's all said and done and carefully examined, Judaism is very different from the Old Testament. In fact, they have nothing in common. Judaism is Cain-style worship that began during the Babylonian exile and solidified itself in rebellion after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The Jews and Israelites who understood the Old Testament converted to Christianity because the truth is that Christianity is the continuation of the Hebrew Scriptures, not Judaism. Those who rejected Christ and followed in the rebellion of their fathers are the ones who established Judaism. This means that Christianity is actually older than Judaism because Christianity is the fulfillment and continuation of God's word and his promises, not Judaism and not the Jews. So next time someone mentions Judeo-Christian anything, make sure to politely ask them to not combine two things that have nothing to do with each other. As if all the previous points weren't enough to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Jews are not God's chosen people, there are still yet even more pieces of evidence to examine. One of those pieces of evidence is that of a chosen, set-apart people that models what God stands for, 
a holy nation, a set-apart people that loves God and shows the world who he is through their behavior and beliefs. This is what God had in mind from the very beginning. But as we know, history testifies against the Israelites because of their countless rebellions and apostasies. But now, do the modern Jews or the state of Israel exemplify what God had in mind when he desired a set-apart people that would demonstrate his character to the world? Let's find out. Although numbers vary, sources like Haaretz say that Israel is among the least religious in the world, with only 30% of people identifying as religious. Other studies looking at atheism estimated that about 20% of Israelis are atheists. We know from history that famous Jews like Marx and the Bolsheviks were atheists. After all, if they truly lived their life according to God's scriptures as God's chosen people, communism and the Holodomor, the death of over 10 million Ukrainian and Russians, mostly Christian, would have never been perpetrated. More stellar examples of Jewish virtue include the famous Sigmund Freud, who was a man that perverted everything under the sun and was also an atheist. Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, is the father of modern propaganda and the devious tactics of social manipulation used on the masses today by both the government and corporations. Bernays was also a Jew and probably atheist or agnostic, or at the very least uninterested in Judaism. Coming in right behind Bernays is Al Goldstein, an atheist Jew who is considered the father of pornography. An interesting side note here is that the largest distributor of gay pornography in the United States, Circus of Books, was run by Karen and Barry Mason, both professing Jews. But moving on. Henry Kissinger and George Soros, names that don't need any introduction these days, are also atheist Jews. And remember our dear old friend Theodor Herzl, the founder of Zionism? He was also a non-practicing secular Jew. Yuval Noah Harari, the WEF's poster boy for transhumanism, is an atheist Jew. Ray Kurzweil, the famous futurist and transhumanist advocate, atheist Jew. Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist author, atheist Jew. The president of the American Atheists, David Silverman, is an atheist Jew. Larry King, Howard Stern, and Stan Lee, who again, don't need any introductions, all atheist Jews. Sarah Silverman, who has mocked Christ and Christianity many times, and Bill Mayer, who has also mocked Christianity, both atheist Jews. Woody Allen, who was accused of child sexual abuse yet never convicted, atheist Jew. Harvey Weinstein, who also needs no introduction, is a secular or agnostic Jew. And last, but definitely not least, let's not forget our dear friends Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, both world-famous pedophiles who need no introduction, atheist Jews. Although recently Ghislaine did claim Judaism as her religion as a result of incarceration, but that's likely to obtain benefits while in prison. We could keep going, but I think you get the point. Now let's turn our attention to the state of Israel really quick and see if we can find any shred of people in there that represents God to the world through their actions and beliefs. David Ben-Gurion, first Prime Minister of Israel, atheist Jew. Golda Meir, fourth Prime Minister of Israel, atheist Jew. Yitzhak Rabin, fifth Prime Minister of Israel, atheist Jew. Norman Finkelstein, a famous political commentator and Israel activist, atheist Jew. The city of Tel Aviv has been called the gay capital of the world, and Haaretz has been documented saying that, quote, homosexuality is part of Jewish tradition. This doesn't come as a surprise, since the Talmud itself discusses pedophilia in Ketubat 11b-6 and Sanhedrin 54b-20-21. through
The Talmud also teaches gender fluidity, which is in complete contradiction to the Hebrew scriptures. But wait, what about the Star of David that the Jews use today? Isn't that biblical? The answer is definitely not. David never used a star, nor was he associated to any stars. But you know who used stars? Occult, devil-worshipping pagans and rebellious Jews. In Amos 5, verse 26-27, God condemns the Israelites for whoring after pagan gods and taking up the star of Kun. Before Stephen gets stoned to death in Acts 7, he also condemns the Jews and quotes to them this passage in scripture, saying they took up the star of Remphan. So what exactly is the star of Remphan, or Kun, and why is it important? Most scholars agree that these names relate to the planets Saturn, and there is much to be said about Saturn's role in the occult, but that is another rabbit hole for another time. M. Hirsch Goldberg in The Jewish Connection states, quote, The Star of David is not of Jewish origin, and the ancient Israelites never used it as their religious symbol. He also says, quote, Perhaps most ironic, the very sign of the Jew in today's world, the six-pointed star, is not really the historic symbol of Jewry, nor was it used as a religious sign by the Israelites. It became the emblem of the Jewish people in 1897, when the Zionist Conference, convened by Theodore Herzl, chose it as their insignia for their movement. But even though each of the 12 tribes had its own symbol, not one tribe used the Star of David. Goldberg also reports that the excavations near Tel Aviv discovered 1,200-year-old mosaic floors with this design, but these were Muslim in origin. The truth is that this symbol of two interlocking triangles is actually very ancient and also associated to occult practice. It represents the male and female aspect intersected, which invokes fertility sex magic, and also it represents the dualism that the occult is based on, such as the, quote, as above, so below principle. This is obvious in the symbolism used by countless secret societies and occult groups, and records indicate that the Jews first began to appropriate this symbol sometime in the 16th century via the Kabbalist Isaac Luria, who is deeply involved with occult practices. Because this symbol has been used for thousands of years, its exact history is difficult to trace. Nevertheless, the question is, why did the Jews, if they're God's chosen people, select this pagan occult symbol to represent themselves when they could have used the menorah, or the actual symbols of the tribe of Judah? The obvious answer is that these are not God's chosen people, but let's keep going. Magnus Hirschfeld, an atheist Jew, was the first homosexual and transsexual advocate of the 20th century, and also performed the first sex reassignment surgery. Karl M. Bayer, a Zionist Jew born in Germany, was the first female-to-male transgender surgery. Back in the United States, all the major lobbying organizations for transgenderism and child gender confusion is done by, you guessed it, God's not-so-chosen people. National Center for Transgender Equality, founded by Mara Keisling, a Jew. Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund, founded by Gillian Weiss and Michael Silverman, both Jews. GLSEN, or Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, directed by Eliza Byard, a Jew. TSER, Trans Student Educational Resources, founded by Eli Ehrlich. And Sylvia Rivera Law Project, a legal aid organization that advocates trans rights, founded by trans activist Dean Spade, both of which are Jews. There are so many more examples available with just a bit of research, but now you have to ask yourself a serious question. At what point do coincidences become meaningful? So far, we have seen that countless influential Jews in the last 150 years were either atheists or agnostics. We have seen that much of the degeneracy that has polluted our media and culture has been spearheaded by atheist or agnostic Jews. 
we have seen that the Zionist state of Israel was created and led by atheist Jews. And we have seen that the symbol Jews chose to use aligns with God's condemnation of pagan practices in the Old Testament. Lastly, today's Jews in Israel are largely irreligious, grossly liberal, and actively advocating their degenerate liberalism everywhere they can. So, are these God's chosen people? Individuals who exist in total rebellion to God and His Word? What does it mean if these, of all people on the earth, are God's chosen, set-apart, and holy people? Are they representing God in His ways? Hopefully by now you see the answer here, because the true people of God do not do such things. They can't, actually, because a true believer receives the Holy Spirit and a new heart with new desires that wants to please God and repents quickly for their mistakes. This is the new covenant, the fulfilled promise to Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to all nations, and it is exemplified in the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, or quite simply, the church. We are almost finished with our little journey, and now it's time to double down on what the Word of God actually has to say about who the chosen people are. Remember that in Romans 9 verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul wrote that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and that the true children of God are the children of the promise. Why is this so important? Well, let's find out. In Galatians 3 verse 16, Paul writes that the promises made to Abraham were made to his offspring, singular who is Christ. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, the true seed to which all the promises were made. Not the Jews, not the state of Israel, not even the biblical Israelites as a whole. Later in verse 29 of the same chapter, Paul concludes that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, an heir according to the promise. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, Paul further reiterates that all the promises God has made are found in Christ which means that there is no promise to anyone who is outside of Christ. Lastly, in Romans 4 verses 11 through 12, Paul writes that the covenant of circumcision with Abraham was made so that those in the future who would not be circumcised could be counted as righteous by faith as children of Abraham. So now let's put all of this together. God made a promise to Abraham's seed, who is Christ, and if we are in Christ, then we inherit that promise with him. But how does one become Christ's? Jesus himself shed some very important light on this when he said in John 6 verse 44 that no man can come to him unless the Father has drawn them to Christ. A few verses earlier in John 6:39, Jesus affirms that it is the Father's will that Jesus lose none of the people he, the Father, has given to Christ. All of this is tied together in the famous golden chain of redemption found in Romans 8 verse 28 through 30, where Paul describes God's sovereign electing purpose in salvation. Before time and the world were created, the Father chose to give a select people to the Son, and the Son freely chose to enter reality and atone on their behalf. This is why Acts chapter 4 verse 26 through 28 says that the cross was predestined and why Jesus is called the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Important to understand now is that this holy set-apart people are not special in any way based on any kind of merit or physical quality. They're not smarter, better looking, more faithful, or emotionally stronger than others. The Bible says that we're all dead in our sins and incapable of making a move towards God. So it is God who must resurrect us and resuscitate us with His Spirit. The revelation of Scripture is that God's choice to resurrect people is not universal, but by a sovereign electing purpose before time began, and that is why it cannot be thwarted. 
It is also why we, as true believers, have complete assurance in our salvation because God is doing the sustaining. Those whom God has purposed to save, he will save, and those who endure to the end will do so because God is working through them. These things are very controversial today because many are deceived on a variety of theological issues. But the Bible is very clear. The true Israel has always been the Israel of faith. But to have faith in God and please God is something that God must work in your life, not something that you can do out of your own free, autonomous choice. That is why Paul reiterates this point in regards to Esau and Jacob in Romans 9 verse 11, that despite being born and having done nothing either good or bad, God had chosen who he was going to bless and who he hated so that it would be based on God's election and not on the effort of man. What all of this adds up to is that the New Testament reveals a profound new spiritual reality. The royal priesthood, the set-apart people, and the chosen are by the will of God through spiritual resurrection, not by our own efforts or merits. Recall that in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, Peter appropriates the language of the chosen people God has set apart for himself in Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6 as being applied to Christians. Paul does the same thing in Titus 2 verse 14. And in Galatians 6 verse 16, he calls this new spiritual reality the Israel of God. This is the elect people from every tribe and nation that would come to worship God by faith and by the move of the Holy Spirit. It is the new covenant of God announced in Jeremiah 31 verse 31 through 34. It is not a covenant determined by your fleshly lineage, but exclusively by the work of God to give you a new heart. This chosen people is a spiritual conglomerate consisting of both Jews and non-Jews in faith and obedience to Christ. Now, Christian Zionists and dispensationalists will quickly point to Jeremiah 31, verse 36 through 37, where God says, If this fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. So let's examine this closely. Does this passage mean that God made a promise to love and forgive all Jews forever no matter what? The answer, of course, is no, because this verse is taken out of context. The offspring or seed of Israel isn't referring to the Israelites as a whole, because if that's the case, then God would have compromised on his values countless times. The seed or offspring, as we have clearly seen from the New Testament, is Christ and those who are Christ's spiritually. It is the body of true believers that God will never cast off, and this is true. These promises are fulfilled in the church because the church, again, not a denomination, but those who believe, is the group of people who is chosen by God, who gets redeemed, and who inherits the earth with Christ. The physical nation of Israel ceased to be a nation when the Israelites and Jews were carried away by the Assyrians and later by the Babylonians. They weren't a nation at any point after that either, because they were always a plaything for various empires like the Persians, Greeks, and Romans. No Davidic king sat on the throne of Jerusalem ever again after the exile. Therefore, politically speaking, Israel ceased to be a nation a long time ago. And after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, they were still not a nation up until the recent counterfeit was created in 1948. But the state of Israel is so far removed from biblical Israel that it is a totally different thing with a different people group altogether. So now, was God wrong about his promise in Jeremiah 31? Well, considering the fixed order of the stars has not stopped and nobody has explored the foundations of the earth, 
it means that God's statements in Jeremiah 31, verses 36 to 37, were not concerning the physical nation of Israel. When Jesus told the Jews that their kingdom would be taken away and given to a people bearing fruit, it's Matthew 21, verse 43, he was announcing the arrival of the spiritual reality, a reality the Jews hated because it destroyed their elitism and their entitlement. Since the beginning of time, there have always been two groups of people, faithful and unfaithful. From Cain and Abel up until the Pharisees, what the Bible reveals is that the world only has these two kinds of people. Yet what was hidden by God up until the New Testament was that those who were faithful were that way because God had supernaturally changed their heart and given them the ability to do good and to draw near to him. This is the revelation of God's sovereign electing purpose. It has nothing to do with race or DNA or lineage or anything because it is completely unconditional. Jesus had many parables to reflect this reality, like the parable of the wheat and the tares, the wise and foolish virgins, the goats and the sheep, and the parable of the sower. All of these discuss two groups of people, those faithful to God and those who are rebellious or show counterfeit faith. With this in mind, to believe that the Jews are God's chosen people goes against everything that the New Testament teaches. Many call this teaching replacement theology and throw the usual anti-Semitic accusations, but I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's actually the other way around. Those who believe that what I have shared with you here is hateful, anti-Semitic, or replacement theology, that the church replaced Israel, are ironically the ones promoting the true replacement theology. The church did not replace Israel, this is true, but that's because the church is the fulfillment of Israel. It is the spiritual antitype that the physical Israel was a type for. It's like saying that Christ came to replace the law, when he himself said that he came to fulfill the law, that's Matthew 5 verse 17. Meaning all of those old pictures and rules and sacrifices had a distinct purpose, just like physical Israel had a purpose in laying the foundation for spiritual Israel. Fulfillment and replacement are two very different things, and anyone who doesn't know the difference ultimately doesn't know their Bible well enough. But beyond this, the ironic truth is that dispensationalism and Jewish-focused futurism are the true replacement theologies. In this twisted, fleshly view of scripture, these teachings do the following. Number one, they replace the elect bride of Christ with the counterfeit Zionist state of Israel as the chosen people. Number two, they replace a spiritual temple with a future physical Jewish one. Number three, they replace enduring to the resurrection with hoping for a magical escape from tribulation called the rapture. Number four, they replace tribulation of the saints throughout the church age with a seven-year tribulation of a handful of wicked and Jews at the end of time. Number five, they replace a sovereign, currently ruling Christ with a future king that can't prevent sin and death during his 1,000-year reign. Number six, they replace years with days, and in so doing, they hide the true identity of Mystery Babylon by misappropriating history to the wrong people and empires. Number seven, they replace the kingdoms and powers in Revelation with individuals, and a spiritual counterfeit that sets itself up in the spiritual temple, which is the church with a political ruler that's a non-Christian as, quote, the Antichrist. Number eight, they replace the final week of Daniel's 70 weeks, which testifies of Jesus, with a made-up week in the future that glorifies the Antichrist instead. Number nine, they replace God's consistent dealings with man by grace through faith, 
with subjective periods called dispensations that make God seem whimsical and totally arbitrary. These teachings, and especially dispensationalism, replace truth with error and unity with divisive identity politics. Instead of reading the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, they do it the other way around. They are wrong, unbiblical, and deceptive. They are fruits of Jesuit theology straight out of the Counter-Reformation designed to destroy true Christianity. They are contrary to the gospel of grace, and they are the true replacement theology. The last thing I will say is this. We must always evaluate the impact of what we believe, and especially what it says about God. If we believe that the Jews of today, who cannot even be reliably traced back to biblical Israel and live in total rebellion, are God's chosen people, then what does this say about God and the gospel? First, it says that he contradicts himself, because having a fleshly chosen people is completely contradictory to all of what the New Testament teaches on this issue. It also says that salvation and God's blessing is by the flesh, which is an affront to the gospel of grace. Have you asked yourself whenever someone has told you that the Jews are God's chosen people, what does it mean to be, quote, chosen exactly? As of the New Testament, the meaning of this word is to be saved. It reflects God's choice of who he has given to Christ. To be chosen and to be part of the, quote, chosen people means to be saved or to be born again. We do not control whether we are saved or not, and we do not know who is truly saved because we do not see the heart like God does. Nevertheless, the scriptures are very clear. God does have a chosen people whom he has chosen to save before the world was ever created, and this is the elect, not by flesh or lineage, but by God's purposes. But if this is the case, it is a contradiction to see countless rebellious Jews die in their sins. If they were truly chosen by God, why would he let them die in such blatant rebellion? The answer is that the Jews are not God's chosen people. Everyone is invited into the gospel, the new reality of the church, which is fellowship with one another and with Christ through repentance and faith in Christ's perfect sacrifice. Those who will hear will hear, and many will also rebel and take offense to the truth. Nevertheless, we must speak it and stand for it in love, because there is no other way to be saved than through Jesus Christ. This is why those Christians insisting on the Jews building a third temple to usher in their false messiah is the most evil, misguided thing that they can do. They are literally doing the opposite of the Great Commission and celebrating rebellion when they should be standing for the truth. So you see, my friend, the Israelites fulfilled their role as the physical chosen people long ago, and this was to paint a future picture of the revealed mystery of a spiritual chosen people in Christ. Today's Jews have little to no relationship to biblical Israel, nor the Hebrew scriptures, but are a mixture of pagan converts and descendants of those who rejected God's offer of mercy through Christ. Anyone who tells you otherwise in these things simply does not know their Bible, does not know their history, and does not understand the gospel of grace. <laughs>